Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Welcome to the latest episode of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your host, Matt Zemek, Saqib Ali, producing the show. Uh, and we have in-house guest, uh, consultant, expert, Andrew Burton, joining us again. We had Andrew and Coach Mert, Mert Bertunga, uh, on board to preview the U.S. Open. We have just Andrew here to, 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 to review uh, the past fortnight in New York. And so, Andrew, as we welcome you back and thank you for joining us uh, once again. Uh, we'll start with the ATP side with the men's tournament just because, you know, that does end a day later than the women. And of course um, you and Mert both said, and I very much agree with it that, you know, we should have the women's final ending uh, the U S open ending major tournaments uh, in the future. We shouldn't have this fixed idea in tennis that, you know, the women's tournament is always the undercard and the men always get to close it out that it shouldn't be that way. But nevertheless, at this tournament that we did have the men's final ending on Sunday after the women's final on Saturday. So it's a little bit fresher on everyone's mind. So that's the starting point for our conversation. And Andrew, you know, one thing like, and I've, you know, I've talked tennis with you for quite some time, uh, you know, for the last few years on these podcasts, but before that at Peter Bodo's Tennis World and the, the references to the Andrew Burton notebook are legendary. And I can remember many times that, you know, Andrew writes in his notebook, match over, you know, at a certain point uh, early in the fourth set when like, you know, the the red alert or amber alert uh, went on. And like, you know, that was like the decisive moment so that the, the Burton notebook certainly has a place in our uh, tennis lexicon here. And a, a, just a good general starting point, Andrew, is, you know, how your pre-tournament notebook shaped up and how the tournament um, reaffirmed or perhaps cut against the notes you made in your notebook. So give us a sense of how the men's tournament unfolded relative to your pre-tournament notebook. Before the tournament, we took a look at the seedings and we were sure to say that the tournaments never quite play out the way that the seedings play out. But we, we took a look and said... Um, who was going to who was going to make their seedings in the at the quarterfinal stage, and who would um, potentially be obstacles to to making the seedings? We did that for both of the the ATP and the the WTA draw, and on the men's side. I got seven out of eight correct in the sense of were they going to make the seedings or not going to make the seedings. So Alcaraz, Sinner, I had them both making the seedings, uh, but Sinner failed to, to make it through to the quarterfinals, went out to, to Zverev. Uh, Medvedev, Rublev, um, I had... Um, now, wait a second, have I got... Have I got that right? No, uh, Medvedev, Rublev. I think I had Rublev going uh, out early. So it's six of eight rather than seven of eight. Uh, Rublev made a seeding. Medvedev made a seeding. 
uh, I had Medvedev making it through to the uh, the quarterfinal stage. Rude and Runa, I had neither of them making it through, neither of them did. And Tsitsipas Djokovic, I had Djokovic with a yes exclamation mark. He was going to make it through to the quarterfinal. Uh, on the Tsitsipas uh, side of that quarterfinal, I had Taylor Fritz as a potential quarterfinalist, and Fritz actually did make it through. So the ATP side of things, uh, six of eight predictable in the quarterfinal. So, you know, my notebook kind of stands up in terms of, of pre-tournament predictions. What, what was your sense about, um, you know, how things shaped up as we went through the round of 16 and into the, the quarterfinals and beyond? Well, you know, my, my, my sense was that, uh, you know, I, I didn't think that Holger Runa's body was going to hold up. I mean, like that, his body's been barking at him. That was definitely something that all three of us, you, myself, and Mert, uh, talked about before the tournament. Uh, so, like, that that was an easy call uh, uh, to get right, and it, it certainly did turn out to be right. And then I think with Casper Ruud, you know, I was also skeptical of him, and I think that in we, in reviewing – Casper Ruud's 2023 uh, season, and particularly at the majors, the surprise is not that he exited early here at the U.S. Open. The surprise was that he pulled it all together and got to the Roland Garros final a second straight year. Like that, that run in Rome and Paris, really, that was the aberration. It wasn't the norm in 2023 for Casper Ruud. It makes that particular performance uh, all the more impressive. Uh, you know, I did think that the usual suspects, Alcaraz, uh, Djokovic, Medvedev, that they would uh, get, uh, you know, to to the quarterfinals. Um, but, uh, you know, di I didn't see Taylor Fritz making it. Now, the draw did open up very nicely for him to the quarters. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, he he stumbled a lot in the middle of the year. So I was not really too focused on him uh, making a run as well. And I thought that. Uh, I didn't see Alexander Zverev, you know, getting past Sinner uh, in a potential fourth round match with Sinner winning uh, the 1000 point tournament in Canada and Zverev not really being, quote unquote, back, uh, you know, to the level that we saw before the injury. And, you know, we can we can discuss whether, uh, you know, that loss to Alcaraz uh, puts a damper on his U.S. Open. But I think we can generally agree that you know, we saw at least some glimpses of the pre-injury Zverev in that match against Sinner. I mean, I, so I, I, I'm hesitant to say that he's, you know, back, back in terms of, you know, being back to the player he was before the injury. But I would certainly say it's this was a step in the right direction for him, you know, recovering at least a measure of that belief, a measure of the toughness. Uh, that he had before the injury. And I did not uh, expect that to happen. So I'm not going to give myself particularly high marks. I was uh, like Alcaraz in the semifinal against Medvedev. I was all over the place, uh, sloppy, impatient, um, not hitting my targets consistently. So I, that, that would be my self-evaluation uh, relative to uh, this U S open. The one thing I, the one thing I, you know, was insistent on was that, you know, this did line up really well for Djokovic. And uh, obviously we'll talk more about him and, and, and Alcaraz uh, in, our, in our next few segments. But just, you know, he 
first off, he he took it easy during August, didn't overextend himself, and that's a very neat contrast with 2021 when he played the Olympics and he was deep fried going into the U.S. Open final against Medvedev. This time, two years later, much fresher, you know, much more ready to take on uh, the strain of of playing a grinding half court, uh, a, a, a grinding a hard court attritional kind of match in that very long second set. Uh, you know, mentally, physically, it just seemed as though he was ready. And also losing to Alcaraz at Wimbledon, like you knew that there would be an extra hunger, an extra sharpness, an extra bit of focus uh, for Joker. And, and also the pressure of the Grand Slam not in play. He could just go out and, and get this tournament and kind of fight back from Wimbledon. And that's one of the hallmarks of Djokovic in his career, as you know well, Andrew, that you know whenever he'd lose to Rafa in at Roland Garros, he'd come back strong at Wimbledon. And so here he loses at Wimbledon. He comes back and wins the U.S. Open, which, you know, the U.S. Open has been his quote-unquote worst major. I mean, he still won it a pile of times, but compared to Wimbledon uh, and, and the Australian Open, well, you know, so right there at the French, the U.S. Open and, and the French, both uh, the weaker majors, but you could say with at Roland Garros that he's actually played the tournament quite well. He just happened to run into Mr. Nadal in a lot of finals and semifinals. The U.S. Open, you know, given his hardcore hard prowess, has really slipped through his fingers a few times. Um, I think the most notable example would be 2016 uh, when he, he he had to play he, he well had to play he got to play Gael Monfils in the semifinal like that's a dream for him uh, you know had the, just a great very favorable run of opponents through the semis and then he goes up against Fafrinka in the final uh, and it didn't turn out well for him like that like that tournament just seemed like his to 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 win the whole way but then Stan uh, uh, took it away from him. Uh, in the final, and you can ind- identify other U.S. Opens that, you know, he felt like the favorite uh, didn't win. I mean, some will point to 2020 when, you know, he's, he hit a, a, a ball, a, a lineswoman, I should say, with the uh, ball. Like, that was definitely his tournament to win. But then when, when he got DQ'd, well, that one uh, got pulled away from him. So Djokovic has a way of restoring order whenever uh, he loses a major that he either thought he would win or was close to winning. That that's really one of the themes that uh, emerges uh, once again well, so you, uh, you, in you, terms of telling his story uh, in this era of tennis. So, Andrew, go ahead. I go mean, ahead. you just des- you described Gael Monfils in uh, 2016 as a dream opponent. I'm going to say that. Uh, uh, Brian Shelton in 2023, uh, you know, might also be up there as uh, he's tucking Stefan and Tara in and starting to to think about, you know, <laughs> where he might be a week from now. It's sort of like, well, you know, uh, here's the draw that you have. And we analyzed the draw beforehand and we said, hey, that, that top half is stacked and the bottom half um, you know, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're none of them rubber chickens, but still, you know, the, if you were Novak Djokovic and you won the coin flip with Carlos and you said, which half would I prefer to be in, you'd have picked the bottom half and then to make it through uh, to the semis and, you know, having dropped a couple of sets, 
and seeing Brian Shelton in front of you, you'd probably think, mm, okay, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I'm in a decent place right now. And also, he played uh, Djokovic played his uh, quarterfinal on Tuesday, so he had two full days off. You know, one half of the men's draw gets uh, two full days off uh, between quarterfinal and semifinal. So yes, it def it definitely all lined up. Uh, for Djokovic at this tournament. So, you know, we didn't get the Alcaraz-Djokovic uh, rematch uh, that obviously a lot of uh, fans and casuals uh, ha- had wanted. We got Medvedev instead. And so, um, you know, we'll, we'll obviously talk about Djokovic. I think, you know, we have to introduce Medvedev into this story. And you and I, in terms of, you know, following that semifinal against Alcaraz, on Friday, like that was brilliantly entertaining, uh, you know, in the middle stages of that match, good portions of the third and fourth sets. That was just extremely electric, interesting tennis. Uh, and then we flipped to Sunday and we were also in agreement on this, that, you know, why the heck is Medvedev massaging the ball and just trying to, you know, play a marathon, you know, hoping to outlast the older player i mean that certainly seemed to be medvedev's approach that you know i have a decade on this guy in terms of having younger fresher legs i'm gonna try just try and make this as attritional as possible for a 36 year old opponent but you know Djokovic is certainly used to that he's comfortable doing that uh he is older but like he still knows how to how to play that kind of game if if you're gonna force him to play it and so the question becomes andrew uh, why do you think Medvedev went through that shift in philosophy that against Alcaraz, you know, he played truly dynamic, multidimensional tennis, and then he goes to Sunday against Djokovic and he just seems to be playing a much more conservative game against a guy who, you know, as Alcaraz himself proved at Wimbledon, go big or go home. Like Alcaraz was willing to, you know, go big against Djokovic when needed. Uh, and we didn't see that same initiative from Medvedev. So what do you think was going on in terms of that change in Medvedev's style from Friday to Sunday? It's a puzzler to me. Um, the thing that distinguished Medvedev's match against Alcaraz was, I thought, you know, a very well calibrated level of risk taking. And that came out in two ways. His willingness to hit two first serves, which he's done before. And I remember I was actually in the stadium in Cincinnati when he famously beat Djokovic in a semifinal where he started hitting two first serves in the second set. And and I think rather nonplus Novak, who was was in a more or less comfortable place. And then by the end of the match, he... He, he just wasn't sure, as my father would say, whether he was punch board or countersunk. Um, Medvedev did this against uh, Alcaraz. And I think by the first set tiebreak, he'd served six double faults, including one uh, in the tiebreak. Uh, but won that first set tiebreak, which which helped to set him up for the for the match. He also, against Alcaraz, came across a very important tactic, 
which was his opponent playing serve and volley to the forehand side, uh, to the deuce court. So you turn around to Sunday and Novak employs the same tactic. Well, this ought to be meat and drink for Daniel because he's seen it uh, on the Friday. So, you know, he's he, he he's going to make Novak pay. And, and I honestly don't think Novak's um, slice serve to the deuce court is one and a half times or twice as good as, as Alcaraz's. I think that Alcaraz isn't yet an elite server uh, and Djokovic is a near elite server in terms of being able to use a serve to set up the point and to win points. But in the final, uh, Medvedev acted as if he'd never seen a serve and volley before. And I think he won something like two points out of 22 times that, that Novak attempted to serve and volley. So that was, was, was really remarkable compared to the semifinal. The other thing that Medvedev did in the semifinal against Alcaraz was, you know, literally put more pace on the ball. He, uh, he went for more off of his ground strokes. But then, as you said, and as I tweeted on Sunday, Medvedev seemed content to massage the ball, you know, to, to fairly safe targets and trust that either that Novak was going to make more mistakes than he did or that Novak was going to get tired starting in the third or fourth set and Daniel was going to cash in. So potentially had Daniel won the second set after going down uh, fairly tamely in the first set, as we should remember Alcaraz did at Wimbledon, Daniel may have been counting on, well, okay, I can turn the second set around. It didn't seem to me that he was changing tactics that much, but he had a couple of opportunities to win the, the second set, which we, we can discuss in, in a little bit more time. And had he won the second set, and obviously if is the most used word in tennis, shoulda, woulda, coulda, but had he won the second set, well, perhaps that game plan, that strategy might have been seen to be smart, but he didn't. And, you know, so now we're discussing a, a straight set victory. But the, the match certainly turned in the second set. What, what were your impressions of it? Oh, I mean, I think it was like the point of the match was pretty easy that, you know, five, six in the second set, uh, Medvedev with set point, he has the down the line open, uh, open, uh, you know, in, into the uh, into the deuce uh, court. Uh, you know, that would be to Djokovic's forehand volley and Medvedev, for, for whatever reason, goes cross court and, and Djokovic picks it off, saves it. And I think, you know, this invites just a, a natural you know, tactical or pattern-based question, Andrew, and that is that, you know, just just to, this is just a generic thing. It's not so much about playing Djokovic. Uh, it's not so much about it being set point, but just the larger reality of, you know, we, we see these pros, you know, not hit to the open court. And obviously, on many occasions, you know, they're trying to wrong foot the opponent. They're trying to constantly keep the opponent guessing. They don't want to be predictable. But at some point, 
you know, if the if the court's open, just hit to it. Like, e- like even if you don't hit a winner, like if Djokovic is made to hit a forehand volley by reaching, uh, you know, toward the base or toward the sideline, I should say, toward the doubles alley, even if Djokovic gets the ball back, he has to hit that ball toward the middle of the court. And so when when Medvedev or any other player is faced with that situation, you know, do I go down the line into the deuce court or cross court into the ad side? Um, if I hit down the line into the deuce court, maybe I don't get the winner, but like that ball is going to come back centrally located. Like Djokovic will have to hit the ball in the middle of the court. Whereas if I go cross court, then that means that if Djokovic is able to, to get to the ball, he can just knock off a volley and there's no way uh, Medvedev can get the ball back. So, you know, just in your experience of watching tennis, not just over a long period of time, but more perhaps over just in more recent years, like, do you think that just as a matter of regular instinctual thinking that players are overthinking the matter of hitting into the open court? Or do you think that even in like a, you know, an, an improvisational situation such as that, do you think there's still value in terms of, you know, keeping it unpredictable rather than just doing the obvious thing? What do you think are the deeper uh, nuances in play here? Well, if you think back, there was another key moment in the second set uh, where Medvedev had a break point and, and actually hit a really good down the line passing shot. And Novak played a, not even a reflex half volley, but played a, a feel half volley um, with his forehand for a winner into the ad court. He managed to get the angle right. And it was, it was a really difficult shot to pull off. That's, that's a high degree of difficulty. And, you know, as we sometimes say on here, if, if Roger Federer had made that shot, the crowd would have applauded for 15 minutes that it was, it, it was just a, a, a terrific shot by Djokovic. Possibly Medvedev remembered that in the moment and decided instead of going down the line, he'd go cross court. Maybe he thought Novak was going to anticipate uh, a down the line shot. So he, he, um, he'd mix it up. I actually think that recalling the point, two things. First of all, that Novak's feet were more or less set. You know, he basically picked a spot and he, he, he was set. So we sometimes talk about players at, at the baseline as staying at home or, or covering the open court. Novak was staying at home. He was staying at home for the cross court. And that's where Daniel hit the ball. So that paid off. But I also think that another thing that you sometimes see with players is, and, and you'll see it very often on attacking shots at midcourt or even close to the net, that a player will come in to play the attacking shot. And some players are extremely good at holding that shot until the very last microsecond to see if their opponent makes a move. And then to hit the ball behind them or hit, to hit the ball into the open court, but to use the information about the, their opponent's body positioning and, and how they're moving to decide how they're going to sh- hit the shot. When Daniel was tracking across, as far as I could see, 
he was picking his spot rather than looking at Novak to help him think about, okay, do I go down the line? Do I go cross court? I'm going to hold my shot until the, the last millisecond to give myself the best chance. If, if Novak starts to cover the line, I go cross court. If Novak is staying in the center, I'm going down the line. So I think Daniel picked a spot early, hit the ball towards that spot. Novak uh, was, was well positioned, knocked off the volley and was able to win the, the set. But the, part of that, and, and I was watching the rest of the match, I, I don't think that Medvedev at the moment is, is an elite passer. I think that partly that's because of the shots he hits, the flat trajectory. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't put a lot of topspin on the ball. Uh, Novak had a lot of success at the net and Alcaraz had a lot of success in the, in the semi-final at the net. And occasionally Daniel was able to hit a dipping ball, but it's, it, it's not his forte. How much of these things in your estimation, Andrew, are just kind of, you know, it's a matter of natural instinct and feel for the game, the kinds of things that, can't really be taught like you either have this instinct or you don't versus you know can these things be coached into tennis players like in terms of waiting uh to hold the shot before uh you know actually going in the direction you want to i mean like a lot these situations as you well know and you're a you know you watch a lot of uh, international football like they're like penalty kicks and there is an art to the penalty kick but it also is ultimately you know a, a guessing game as well and you know some people are really skilled at at hitting the precise target and some aren't um so like there there's a skill question but there's also a coaching element and what what do you think is like the the proper way to balance those two tensions when assessing tennis players and how they react in those kinds of situations i think a lot of um tennis shots tennis skills can be coached but i think there's a big argument for saying what what are you really good at and how do we improve on your strengths as opposed to um to cover up your weaknesses as it were and for a player like medvedev he's going to make a lot more of his earnings playing from deep than he is trying to play some kind of a, a transition game and uh, you know knock off the ball close to the net. So if you're coaching somebody like Medvedev, and uh, there there was a, a moment in the final I have to bring up here. I I always call uh, John McEnroe the the world's worst tennis commentator, partly because he he never prepares for matches. And uh, when he was looking at, at Medvedev's coach, he was saying, well, who did, who did this guy coach before he coached Daniel? And I thought, oh, wow, this is great. John McEnroe is going to tell us this. And it turned out he didn't know it. He, he was just posing the question as he, as he idly does. Who, who is this guy? Where does he come from? But anyhow, if you're coaching Medvedev, and it's not just Medvedev, Medvedev's an example in this, in this example, and, and you're 
you know, you've got this idea in your head that, okay, I'm going to show Daniel how to hold the ball when you're inside the service line and you've got a put away shot, you hold the ball so that you're able to win nine points out of 10 rather than eight points out of 10. Daniel's probably going to tell you, Hey, I'm not in that situation very often. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd rather work on my return of serve. I'd rather work on my serve. I'd rather, I'd rather work on the things that uh, are more often going to translate into um, into things that are going to win me tennis matches. So, you know, a lot depends on, on the, the player that you're working with. Um, and, and do you want them to be able to, to do something serviceably well? Um, or do you want them to, to take something that is currently not a strength and turn it into a strength? And, and that's a matter of coaching philosophy, but it's also a matter of the player's philosophy. All right, let's talk about the champion, Novak Djokovic, for a little bit. So, you know, it's hard to know what else there is to say after another major, now 24. Um, but, you know, like we saw in that final, uh, a lot of familiar Djokovic moments from major finals that there were certainly moments when he looked uncomfortable, moments when it looked like it was a struggle for him. But, like, we know this, we've seen this that he's very comfortable being uncomfortable and that, you know, the, the, the moments when it seems as though he's, I mean, he gives the appearance of being spent or really annoyed or whatever, but like, that's all part of a normal match. Like you will have those ups and downs, but there always is, you know, a deeper fuel tank. There always is a place that he's able to go to, to access more clarity, more strength, more focus. But Andrew, as he as he gets older and, you know, he's you know, now 36 years and several months old, you know, when is there anything you gained from the final and from this tournament that tells you anything about uh, how much more he's going to have over the next several years? I mean, in terms of hunger, like that doesn't seem like something that's ever going to go away from Novak Djokovic as long as he's playing. But. You know, Federer ran into this, you know, losing that extra half step. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing, uh, obviously, Nadal deal with the, the ravages of, of injuries and anything. Any sense of whether Djokovic is going to be able to maintain the absolute elite athleticism, which has enabled him to win another major, which enabled him to, you know, beat Alcaraz in that three-hour 49 minute match like if we imagine a, a 2024 season in which you know Djokovic is going up against Alcaraz in major finals and and uh you know trying to fend off the other young bucks uh on the tour any sense that he's uh either go he's definitely going to have that same speed and that same uh set of athletic resources or any sense that that might be waning to any slight degree and that down the line that could eventually make a difference so if you think about um the players that we call the big four so murray nadal federer um andy murray is still on tour i'd be quite surprised if he makes it to a grand slam quarterfinal um in the future i think he's weighing up is he getting enough out of 
going to tennis tournaments and sometimes winning two matches, but then losing the third. And, and, and Murray's, you know, clearly at a point where going deep into tournaments, particularly Masters of Thousands and Majors, to go deep, to go beyond the first or second round, he very often has to play a five-set match and very often there, there's much less left in the tank. But he's playing with an artificial hip. Nadal, we hope to see towards the end of the year, the start of 2024, but we're not sure how much uh, he's going to play and whether his body's going to hold up next year. Federer basically went through various knee surgeries um, and after the uh, the Australian Open in 2020, I believe, was 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 basically not the same player. He, he had an, a knee surgery. He took time off. He tried to come back and and basically he he found it very, very hard to come back and eventually retired. So it's not really um, a sort of a, a gradual slow descent. If you think about an aircraft, you know, coming in to, to make a landing, coming in from 40,000 feet and then landing at an airport, it's not the descent from 40,000 feet to 35,000 to 30,000 that affected those other players in the big four. It's, you know, some really significant physical um, issue that has meant that it's it's been very hard for them to to compete at the quarterfinal stages and beyond in the big tournaments. At the moment, there's nothing that Novak is going through that indicates that he's he's got that hard red light on the dashboard that says this is seizing up and you're going to have to take six months off. And when you come back, you may not be the player that you were. I don't think if you look at the sweep of Novak's career, that he's at the 40,000 foot you know, highest elevation that he's been at in his career. I don't think in 2023, He's as good a player as he was in 2015 because I don't think his um, his athletic ability, his ability to stay explosive into the fifth set is as, is as much as it was before. Now, he may tell you he's improved in some areas, and I'm sure that's true. I, I think his serve is better than it was in 2015. And I think he's he's gained eight years of experience. There's probably other things that he, he's able to do now that he wasn't able to do then. But I think that the loss of athletic power means that he's not at 40,000 feet. Now, we can argue, is he at 35,000 feet? Is he at 30,000 feet? To win three grand, grand slams in 2023 and make the final of the fourth, you know, you're not talking about just skimming the treetops. So going into 2024, if you were to say, which would you be more surprised at, Novak winning three Grand Slams or Novak winning one Grand Slam? 
I think on the, the record of 2023, you'd say, oh, I'd be more surprised if it was one Grand Slam or no Grand Slams, unless there's a red light on the on the dashboard and, you know, he comes up with something going on with, uh, you know, a very important part of his body, which means I can't physically compete for six to nine months. And when I come back, I'm going to have to see what, what I can do. All right. That leads us into my final question on the men's tournament and on men's tennis uh, after the U S open. And that is that, you know, does 2024 shape up in your mind as, you know, uh, 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 Alcaraz and Djokovic versus the field, or do you think there's going to be someone who enters the mix uh, as a third threat, as a third presence? And maybe, maybe we could, say that Medvedev is already there uh, you know could, that could be the case but maybe it's someone else and you know do the does the upcoming indoor uh fall season have anything to do with it or is it really more about you know how these players retool and rethink uh when the off season hits uh in in November and of course you know this invites a discussion of Alcaraz at the U.S. Open and Alcaraz's 2023 season so how would you assess the Alcaraz-Djokovic-ATP balance of power uh, after uh, all four of the majors have been completed in 2023? Well, if you look at the, the 16 semifinal slots for the majors this year and this old conversation we have about depth versus stability, Djokovic was a semifinalist in four tournaments. Alcaraz was a semi-finalist in three tournaments and missed the first, the Australian Open, through injury. So those guys are one and two. Daniel Medvedev was the other player who made two semi-finals. Uh, and, you know, he he's a, yeah, the, the word that we often use for, for Medvedev is, is, is mercurial. I don't think he's really shown yet Although obviously a decent semifinal, you know, getting to the semifinal, then beating Alcaraz and making the final, I don't think he's shown yet that he's that he's moving to another level. So is he in the mix? Yes, but <clears throat> would you expect him to dominate the twenty twenty four season over Carlos? I don't think so. And then you look at some of the other players uh, who made semifinals. They're mostly the people that you'd expect. Tsitsipas has won. Khachanov has won. Um, Sinner has won. Zverev has won. Kaspar Ruud has won. Um, you know, I'm not reeling them all off, but they're pretty much the players that, that, that you'd expect to be in the mix. Now, Holger Runa who I think is uh, potentially the next great threat, um, didn't make a Grand Slam semi-final this year. And you, you've already said there, there's a question mark over him. Um, so looking to 2024, your question was, is it Djokovic and Alcaraz versus the field at the moment? you'd likely say yes. All right. Let's move to the women's tournament. And Coco Goff, she did it. She did the thing uh, at age 19, winning winning a major 
uh, you know, very different playing style from Serena Williams, but nevertheless, you had a teenager, a, a teenage American winning the U.S. Open, so bringing back definite memories of Serena Williams in 1999. And I, I think the starting point, Andrew, is just how much of a launching pad moment is this for Coco Goff? And I'm not saying that we should assume that it's a launching pad moment, because it could just be one moment in time and that you still have Sabalenka and Rabakina and Sviantek and Jabur and also the more up-and-comers uh, on the women's tour. Like, maybe this is just an isolated moment when everything went right for Coco Goff, but maybe it is a catapult uh, and a catalyst for something more, something greater. How would you come down on that fundamental uh, tension point? I, I, I think it's really interesting because as you've just reeled off those names, the question that we ended up with on the ATP side was, is it Djokovic and Alcaraz versus the field? And we kind of came down to, eh, at the moment, probably. But then as you reel off the names, you know, at the end of Roland Garros, we were potentially talking about a new big three, which was Sviantec, Rabakina and Sabalenka. And the last two Grand Slam tournaments of 2023 have kind of shaken that paradigm a bit. So now you've got uh, Coco Goff winning her first major. The really interesting thing I think about Goff's career to date is that it, it reflects kind of steady progress and something that you would want to see laying in the groundwork for someone having a long and really successful career. So uh, a, a player who is coming to know her own strengths and to trust in how she plays the game. Also someone who made a coaching change after Wimbledon and brought in uh, Gilbert and Perra and her father stepped back, but is obviously still involved uh, in you know, helping her think through her career and her game. But she then won a 500, she won a thousand for the first time, and then she won a Grand Slam for the first time. So in terms of it being a launching pad, you know, we go back a few years in the, the U.S. Open on the WTA side and, you know, you've had some some winners there. You've had um, Sviantec in 2022, who obviously is going to finish up, assuming that, that you know, she has a, a long and productive career. She's going to have a whole parcel of uh Grand Slams and, and Thousand Titles. She'll be an open-era elite player. But then before her, you had uh, Raducanu playing against uh, Fernandez in, in the final, which was possibly the most random WTA final you can imagine. Now, are either Raducanu or Fernandez going to be perennial top 10 players and and have any ma more majors you don't know but 
Coco Goff, you'd say, is a much more likely multiple Grand Slam winner than either Emma Raducanu or Leila Fernandez. At the moment, based on what we've seen, I'm going to put a little bit of an asterisk against that for a second. And then going back a few years, you have uh, Bianca Andrescu in 2019, uh, who appeared to have the world at her feet, but has struggled physically to, to really put together full season since then. So in, in terms of looking at the future, thinking about this as a launching pad for Coco Golf, her progression has been terrific, but she's coming into a much more packed field of potential winners, I think. And then the WTA also, you know, Raducanu and others has these sort of kind of wild cards. I mean, nobody would have picked Bondrosova as a Wimbledon winner or, a, you know, another Grand Slam winner before uh, 2023. And then she backed up Wimbledon this year with a pretty good run in, in the US Open. So, you know, the hardest thing is to predict is the future. The little asterisks I, I, I want to put out there is is one thing I think that, that Coco Goff um, got a little bit uh, peeved about was comments on tennis Twitter. And you and I and Sakib and Coach Mert and various others of the, the folks that, that we um, we hang out with, yeah, we're tennis Twitter denizens. So if Emma Raducanu uh, or Leila Fernandez three years from now says, oh, I always listen to this podcast and there's this English guy who slagged me off and said that... Uh, even though I'd made a major final or I'd won a major, it was it was a totally random event, and that that gave me the confidence or the the kick up the backside I needed to become the multi slam winner I am now. Well, fair enough. But uh, anyway, back to Coco Goff. I I I think her trajectory is still upwards. Now, one of the natural dynamics of sports is that you know when you when you win your first championship. You know, you might have been assigned a, a certain degree of potential and possibility, but, you know, the rest of the locker room or just the rest of the, the athletes you're competing against, there isn't that same awareness compared to after you win a title. Like, then you get much more of a target on your back. Then you become much more of a marked figure. Like, oh, this is a major champion. I really got to, uh, you know, raise my game to, 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 to play her, to beat her. And so it raises the, the natural point, and this applies to any sport, that like after you win a championship or after you do something really special that gets the attention of, of all your other uh, fellow competitors, you have to get better to maintain. You have to improve to stay at that championship standard. So if you were looking at Coco Goff and uh, just assessing her game, um, you know, one could make the, the case that you know, as she gets older, you know, still only 19, when, you know, when she's 22, 23, you know, her body's going to be that much stronger, more, uh, more resilient. And, and you know, like the, the, my, the velocity that she'll be able to get on her serve, on her forehand as she gets older, that might just take care of that notion of, you know, improving so that she maintains the championship standard. But maybe there are other adjustments that she needs to make in order to improve and maintain, improving her game to maintain 
the championship standard, what would you look at in her game in terms of uh, identifying that particular pathway in terms of how she can get better so that she maintains her place uh, atop women's tennis, which she established at this U.S. Open? I I don't know that I I don't know that it's so much a question of technique. Um, if you listen to a lot of the commentary about people who were playing against her, the you know the number one piece of conventional wisdom was that the forehand was potentially a shot that was was going to break down. And and I think to a certain extent, the fact that that seemed to be the conventional wisdom seemed to to guide Mukova in the semi-final and Sabalenka in the final, playing a lot of balls to to Goff's forehand, and she was able to defend it pretty well. I thought that in the in in the actual final, I confess that I was watching a rugby match uh, in the first set and turned over at the start of the second set for the, the WTA final. And the thing that, that impressed me the most about Goff was just how mentally locked in she seemed to be. And she, she hit a backhand pass against uh, Sabalenka for a winner that, that really seemed to solidify her confidence at that point. And I, I don't think that she had a really significant wobble uh, after that in terms of, of just the, just her confidence level. Maintaining that that level of confidence, it, it possibly isn't going to be there match to match, week to week. Uh, she talked about uh, some advice that Roger Federer had given her, which is that it isn't going to be there week to week. You aren't going to be able to win every match. You have to be able to enjoy your tennis and enjoy your career understanding that and that this is something that players sometimes struggle with from juniors when they come into the professional ranks that they're they're used to winning a lot and then they have to learn how to adjust but even players who who make it to uh you know Sabalenka or Sriontek's level and now Goff's level understand that they're 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 going to lose matches. We we haven't had a dominant number one uh, in the the WTA since Serena retired. So seeing Coco Goff understand that she's got a target on her back and then adapt mentally to that, take on board whatever coaching advice she's getting, adapt to you know her own continued physical development and understanding of the game it, it it's all a process and and one of the most important things for me about watching and listening to goff is feeling that she's a very very grounded individual and i think the doubles that she plays has given her another string to her bow it it almost certainly improves her her net play a lot it improves um other aspects of her game movement and you know thinking about you know how the rhythm of the game changes 
But I think I think it also makes it fun. It seems like she she really has fun playing with Jessica Pagula. And so long as she continues to enjoy her game, I hope in the next four or five years that she gets a lot out of playing. And if she does that, the wins will come. Well, you always deliver great insights, Andrew. That's one of, but I want to highlight that one because I think like that's a whoa. Like that is just a, like, I, I never thought of that, but like that is a tremendous explanation for why, as you accurately note, she's so grounded that like that is kind of integrated her into tour life and given her just a sense of normalcy about taking the court, having fun, playing tennis, uh, just making every tennis experience seem natural and organic such that you know she's not going to be overwhelmed or overpowered uh by moments and i mean she was overwhelmed when she played in her first major final uh against iga Svantec at roland garros and she definitely was not uh in in this major final and so that that uh reference to her doubles that's that's just a a great great connection to you know why she seems to be just so much at home on a tennis court and why pressure, scrutiny, those things really haven't gotten to her the way they have gotten to other very young athletes and the way they will continue to get to other young athletes, that she's she's grounded in a way that a lot of other 19-year-olds uh, are not. So let's turn to the, the person uh, Goff beat in the final, Arena Sabalenka. And I think the main thing with Sabalenka is on one hand, best player on tour this year. You know, she has, she has had the most consistent year, uh, you know, getting to this final, whereas Sviantec and uh, Rabakina and, and, and Jabir did not. Um, she is now uh, you know, officially world number one. I mean, you know, winning the Australian Open and very nearly making the Roland Garros final, like from, from major to major and from tournament to tournament, she, she has had the best season from January through early September. So you have that, like best player on tour, not too shabby. And it certainly marks a considerable amount of growth for her overall. And yet, and yet, you have the reality that, you know, she was up 5-2 over Mukova in the Roland Garros semis. Let that one get away. She dominated the first set against Goff in this final. And then, you know, she she became erratic, as is her want. So if you're Sabalenka, you have best player on tour, and yet I let two majors get away. How, how, Andrew, do you reconcile and try and make sense of those two uh, competing and counterintuitive realities? So just from the U.S. Open perspective, my sense of the final was that Goff won it rather than Sabalenka lost it. And I, I, I remember that this was a, a conversation that we had with Pete Bodo, you know, more than 15 years ago, you know, the opponent gets a vote and very often you'll have matches and there'll be matches between players with different styles where it swings back and forth, but the, the excellence of one player the different excellence of, of one player is enough to carry them past on the day, the other player. 
And it, it looked to me that it would have been one thing if being disappointed about um, losing the second set or maybe, you know, getting the shakes in the, in the second set, feeling that you're close to winning and, and, and starting to, to get tied or to choke. If Sabalenka had started spraying tennis balls and, you know, had been double faulting willy nilly and had collapsed like a souffle taken too early out of the oven, that would have been one thing. But I thought Sabalenka pretty much stuck with the game plan. She used her improved movement very well and she was hitting the shots she wanted to hit. The only problem is that in tennis, if the opponent keeps on getting the balls back, then eventually you can go for a shot and it lands two inches out and the point goes to the opponent. So I would imagine that Sabalenka, if she's getting good advice, and I'm, I'm sure she is, is being told after the match, at least uh, an hour after the match, you've got nothing to be, um, you've got nothing to reproach yourself for in terms of losing that match. You played very well, you executed, your opponent beat you on the day, that happens. Let's move on. And one of the things that the the ATP Big Four of the Golden Era were very good at doing was coming off the court after losing a match, forgetting it and moving on. Um, the tennis racket that Sabalenka used, uh, or at least part of the time, was mangled quite heavily in a a viral video of her coming into the locker room and, and whacking the racket about. But I, I believe that there was a photo uh, retweeted by, you know, one of our famous tennis tweeters, La Wanda, of Sabalenka actually passing that racket on to a fan and, and smiling in the camera. I, and Sabalenka, I, I think emotionally, is is better able in 2023 to move on from matches that she's lost than she was in 2021 or 2022, which is why she's the the number one now. Uh, so I hope that Sabalenka, kind of like Kova Goff, if, I think if you'd have told Arena Sabalenka before uh, January the 1st, 2023, you're going to play four major semifinals, you're going to win a Grand Slam and and make a final uh, and you're going to be the world number one um, after the US Open I think she'd likely have signed for that hopefully as part of her continued progress now she's she's a little bit more established than than Coco Goff but she's she's another player who's got a very long road ahead of her and if she keeps on getting better then she her her route to winning the title in New York was hitting the ball to where even Coco Goff couldn't get to it. She wasn't able to do that this time, but maybe uh, twelve months from now, Sabalenka will have continued to.
to improve so that if you had a rematch against golf in 2024, even an improved Coco Golf would have the racket taken out of their hands. Two more questions before uh, the end of our show, Andrew. And one of them is that, you know, in 2022, Iga Svantec had a, a, a dominant year. You know, she was far and away the best player on tour. Like she created separation from the field in 2022. 2023, certainly not a bad year, you know, winning Roland Garros and, and still winning a few other uh, notable tournaments and, and being world number one until September. Like, like that's not chopped liver. But, you know, she was knocked back a little bit. Again, good year, but not this, uh, the same as 2022. And so it invites the question of, you know, with Sabalenka having this really strong 2023 season, do you anticipate Sabalenka being knocked back a little in 2024, or do you see a sustained uh, upward trajectory? And how does that play into your expectations for the WTA next year? And, and you know, we had a first half of the year, as you mentioned earlier in the show, first half of the year, it felt like you had an emerging coalescing big three of Sviantec, Sabalenka, Rabakina. Second half of the year, you have Vondrosova winning Wimbledon, Goff winning the U.S. Open, and that notion of a big uh, a big three uh, took a few hits. So how do you see 2024 uh, emerging? And, and more particularly, how do you think that the, the players at the top are going to be on a steady upward trajectory? Or do you think that, that the rest of the field is going to get in their shots, uh, as we've seen for the past uh, couple months uh, here in the summer of 2023? So I think that the WTA inherently is still less predictable than the ATP. Uh, this is something like the 16th or 17th year in a row that the ATP stability measured in terms of the number of players who make it to major semifinals has been greater than the WTA stability. And, and sort of if we go back to the framing device that we use you know, thinking about players making their seedings in the quarterfinals. We talked about the ATP uh, side of it. On the WTA side, I had penciled in no against several of the names um, and none of the players that I had had had, pegged, had said were going to make it through surprised me by making it through. So Maria Sakari, I think, went out in the first round. Uh, Caroline Garcia went out early. Ange struggled with her her health. Uh, I think she had a virus at the start of the tournament and, and battled through a few rounds, but didn't make it uh, very far. And Rabakina went out early. So... I think that on, on the WTA side, kind of predictable in their unpredictability. Now, uh, Karolina Mukova was the other player than Sabalenka to make it to multiple uh, Grand Slam semifinals. And I, I think she ought to be looking forward, hopefully if she stays injury-free, to a good 2024. Uh, Iga uh Elena Rybakina, uh, they're going to be forces to be reckoned with. 
I'd be surprised if the WTA coalesces around a big two. Um, but it might coalesce around a big six. And do we know who the big six are in um, at the end of 2023? Well, we haven't mentioned Barbara uh, Krachikova, uh, who uh, has been a threat in, in prior years and hasn't had a great 2023. There are other players like Bianca Andrescu, um, who who haven't made it back to the levels that they've been before. Naomi Osaka is saying that she wants to to compete again. So, what does twenty twenty four look like on the on the WTA side? There's probably going to be a few strong players that we've already talked about. Um, is Yelena Ostapenko, who was uh, someone that I talked about being in the mix to, to give Shriantek a hard time, as, as actually happened. Is, is she going to upset a few apple carts? Maybe. Um, so the WTA is predictably unpredictable, is my forecast for 2024. I don't leads into my final question, Andrew, and that is that, you know, in your pre-tournament notes and you know, our, like you did mention Ostapenko and Mert Ertunga mentioned Madison Keys, and she definitely made a great run and came very, very close to, to, to making the final. So in terms of, you know, we started this conversation with your notebook for the men. Let's end the conversation with your notebook for the women and just, you know, was there a and and it's less it's less about whether you nailed your pre-tournament assessment, whether you got it right or not. It's more about you know when you took notes on these players coming into the U.S. Open. Anything in terms of the evolution of a player, whether it met your expectations or veered from your expectations, was there like a strong case study, a strong uh, story and storyline? that emerged from this tournament that informs your view of, of the tour in 2024 and, and how the balance of power that you were just talking about, how that might be reshaped. Any, any particular player or players that really caught your eye for better or worse in New York? I just think it has to end with the winner, the Coco Goff. Um, her tournament started with a first round match on Arthur Ashe against a tough veteran. And there was some, some controversy about uh, the speed of play uh, and the veteran Siegmund was, I think, quite unhappy in press and shed some tears about um the the crowd reaction to her which um you know that was a that was a tough thing to go through but golf herself that was one of i think four three set victories so she won four times in the final set including the final and so as as well as her physical gifts which have you know, been there for a long time. And as well as her tennis playing ability, which had taken her to the Roland Garros final 
last year. She was on an upward trajectory, but her 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 mental toughness, her ability to, to not get down on herself, and and her ability to 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 trust the process, as it were. I don't know if Brad Gilbert uses that phrase. I know that uh, Paul Anacone always does. But but basically, to 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 trust herself in the big moments. I I hope. I, I always think that a, a player who um, is able to, to 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 back themselves, and then we've talked about Sabalenka. If Sabalenka can um, leave that final and look back on her season and say, "Hey, I executed the way I can play better this year than I have before, and I'm going to do that again in 2024." I think I would imagine Coco Goff is going to be able to to say that. Um, so one player, I don't know about one player, but the one who's who's likely uh, to rise to the top, thankfully, is is the winner. And you know, just because of how grounded and realistic Goff is. Even the protest that happened in the semi-final match, um, I think it was the semi-final uh, against yeah. Mukova, where you had some environmental protesters, one of whom glued his feet to the the concrete, and it took them 45 minutes before they, they got them back on court. In press afterwards, Goff... You know, she was talking about a tennis match, but she was also saying, hey, you know, that's an important cause. They had a message they wanted to get across. I'm not going to rain fire and brimstone down on them for speaking out for what they believe in. That's a really mature point of view, I think, from somebody in her position. So she very much has the potential to be a standard bearer for American tennis for years to come. And tennis is in pretty good hands as the majors wrap up at the end of 2024, both on the ATP side and the WTA side, I think. On that note, that concludes our U.S. Open review podcast. And Andrew Burton, always excellent insights always bringing the very best to the table, much as Novak Djokovic and, and Coco Goff did in winning this tournament. Uh, Andrew, thanks not only for joining us for this show, but for being with us throughout the year at the majors, uh, lending your perspective on these tournaments. It enhances my understanding and knowledge of tennis. And I know that, that I speak for all our podcast listeners, uh, that they, they feel the same way. Andrew, thank you for your insight and for joining us here on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon.